Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to learn quite a bit from uh, this founder, someone that has built something from nothing into something meaningful that actually recently had a quite interesting uh, uh, successful transaction happening. But but I think we, we won't go more into details. We'll let him tell us about it. So without further ado, Frank Poor, welcome to the, uh, to the, to the Dealmaker Show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. How are you today? I am doing very well. Also in New York City, and it's a beautiful day, so I cannot complain. So, uh, Frank, you're doing a little bit of a, of a walk through memory lane. So, did you did you actually grow up in New York? Yeah, I grew up uh, way up on the Canadian border in we called it the North Country, and uh, it was you know right literally on the Canadian border. And so, I grew up in a small 900 square foot house, and uh, actually joined the army uh, after I graduated from high school. I grew up in a pretty rural uh, small town. Nice, nice. So, so why the army? What, what, what was the trigger there? Well, I really didn't have the money to go to college, and uh, didn't, you know, really know too much about the process of uh, of college and that sort of thing. I knew all of my friends were going, and I wanted to go. Um, I ended up uh, joining the army because they had a GI bill at the time that would allow me to, if I uh, saved some money and took certain, you know, jobs in the army, that I would be able to come out with fifteen thousand dollars for college. And at the time, that seemed like a lot of money and a real opportunity to me. And you were doing tactical communications there. So what, what, was, what was tactical communications? So tactical communications was kind of a fancy way of saying that uh, I was a uh, radio man uh, in a combat infantry unit. So uh, I carried the radio. So that was, uh, that was the tactics. We fixed the radios at a very superficial level. But for the most part, I was in an infantry unit. And, uh, you know, we would get forward deployed with communications gear, that sort of thing. And what kind of uh, deployment or, or operations were you involved that were exciting? Well, uh, exciting. A lot of it's preparation, and the preparation is usually pretty boring. Uh, um, but some of the exciting stuff, uh, you know, we were in Panama. We went uh, into jungle training in Panama. I thought that was a, a lot of fun. Um, you know, but there was, you know, certain aspects of it that, uh, you know, probably weren't, uh, you know, weren't really who I am. I'm, I'm much more of a free thinker and much more of a, an entrepreneur than I am somebody who likes to uh, be told what to do and follow orders. Right. Totally, totally get it. And you, you also after this, so, so just before we go into you studying uh, philosophy and psychology, what were your 
biggest takeaways from this couple of years that you did in the Army? Um, honestly, the, the thing looking back on it was that, you know, it's just the idea of perseverance, you know, whether you're in a difficult situation or, you know, whether you're in some long, you know, interminable march or whatever the heck you're doing, the idea that mentally you can get through it, you know, you can just stay strong, you know, keep, keep a positive attitude and, and try to try to persevere. You know, perseverance is probably the biggest thing I took away. And and what what was the reasoning behind, like, after you did this couple of years in the Army, what got you into thinking, you know what, I'm going to go and study philosophy and psychology? Well, I, like I said, I always wanted to go to college. Um, you know, I probably figured I would go for computer science. There was something about that at the time that was appealing. I don't know if I have the mathematical brain that I would have needed to really be successful in that. But um, I ended up going and took a couple classes. And the ones that really stuck with me were, you know, sort of the more esoteric, um, high level intellectual kind of classes, philosophy in particular, and then, you know, sort of, you know, some of the more, um, you know, I'll call it philosophical psychology um, types of topics that that were really interesting to me. And it's just what captured my attention and became really interesting to me. And, you know, I think, you know, people always say, if you could do it over, what would you go study? And, you know, I said, look, if I was going to do it all over and I just wanted to make a lot of money, I'd probably go into finance because, those guys make a lot of money for not doing a lot, uh, at yeah. least from my perspective, uh, just move, moving other people's money. But, um, you know, if, if you, you know, if I was to do it all over again, my sense is I'd probably go into those very same topics just because they, they were what was of interest to me. So as soon as you graduated from this, because I know it, it took you a little bit of time before you launched um, your, your, your big business, Commerce Hub which we're going to go into detail in just a little bit. And you did that after your MBA, but what did you do right after college? So after college, um, I met a, I met a guy and back then Apple didn't have Apple stores. They had what were called Apple dealerships and they covered certain territories around the country. And I worked for the Apple dealership in upstate New York. And, you know, I had from the Canadian border down to Albany, New York, but not Albany over to Syracuse, but not Syracuse. Um, and then back up to the Canadian border. So I had this really sort of rural pasture of, uh, of a territory. Um, but, you know, I, I, I started to get very excited about the Macintosh and the kinds of things it could do. I, saw, I started to see how well it actually could work within schools um, and the types of software they had. Um, I wasn't able to sell into businesses at all. There was no business software for it whatsoever. There was no Excel um, they didn't even make Microsoft Word uh, at the time. And so it was a really difficult business sale. But I found that printers in particular, I could really tackle um, and schools. And so I ended up, you know, doing really, really well as a as a, an Apple salesperson and ended up actually getting to meet Steve Jobs, uh, you know, at Macworld in Boston one year as being for hitting my numbers. And um, that was a huge event for me. Um, he, this is before he was you know, sort of the super cool, you know, famous uh, guy that he is. He was more of a, a tough guy, but it was really cool to go and get to see him and, you know, just hear him speak and know, knowing the story that he had started this in his garage always appealed to me. Um, so, I, so I did that for quite a while. And what did you learn about the art of selling? I learned that you have to find, um, you can't go and, you know, people say, oh, you're a good salesman. The truth is I'm, I'm a good salesman if I really believe in what it is I'm selling. And I'm a horrible salesperson if I don't. Um, you know, what I learned is that you really have to believe in your product. And, um, you know, if you don't believe in it, then you're not going to convince anyone else to. Um, but in addition to that, you really have to find out how to tailor everything to that particular person or company's needs. Like, it's not a one-size-fits-all. 
you know, there's some patterns out there, but for the most part, you know, I, I, I think every sale is unique. And, uh, I, I learned that, you know, you have to be thoughtful and you have to listen, uh, more than you talk, uh, so that you can end up tailoring, uh, you know, the presentation, tailoring the pricing, tailoring the packaging and everything to what it is the customer needs. Yeah. No, and I, and I agree. That's why we have two ears and one mouth. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> use, use them in proportion. They always say. That's it. That's it. So, so then, so then you did this for for a little bit, and 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 you were already in the um in the world of of being employed. I mean, why why did you decide to go back to to studying and and doing the MBA? Well, interestingly enough, I'd started a uh, I in the interim there. I came down, and uh, my wife was working for a company that was selling video games at wholesale and distribution, and this ties back out to. Uh, even where I am today, but 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 basically, she they were selling video games, uh, you know, to Blockbuster and to other stores and that sort of thing. So you know, this was you know the bi typical video games you'd see. And at the time, there was no such thing as Electronics Boutique or Funko, which has come and gone, or these other types of you know companies that were just selling video games. And so I decided to start a video game only store. And in addition to just selling video games, new. I decided to start selling used video games. Um, and this sounds, you know, uh, not so interesting today because a lot of companies do it. But back then, that was sort of unheard of, right? People did use books, um, but nobody was really doing used video games at the time. Um, and I did really well. And, you know, that really got me to catch the, you know, sort of entrepreneurial bug. Um, and I was doing uh, some work with uh, another gentleman who, um, you know, was on a, uh, we were going to open up multiple of these stores. He was going through some personal uh, issues that he had to resolve uh, before we could go do a number of these things. So I decided to go back and get my MBA at that time. And uh, so that's 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 what led me up to the MBA. But the video game company and that guy ended up being, you know, pretty important to the story long term. So then the MBA, would you say that it's like the um, the last push that you needed? And, and if so, like what? What did that look like? In terms, because you you went to do management information systems. That was really the um, the focus, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I I went back to my MBA program more as a way to just um, I don't want to say have something to do, but I wanted to. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was doing this video game store. We were starting to do really well with it. Um, the person who was going to be putting up the money needed some time to do certain things. And I didn't want to wait that year or two that it was going to take. And so I, I, I wanted to do something productive. And so I went back to get my MBA. Um, I, I'd like to say that it was thoughtful and that I had some master plan. But the truth was I uh, decided that I didn't have a job and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And so I went back to get my MBA. And that's the truth. And just a, a random question. If, if you could go back in time. Would you, would you like, and in terms of like getting up to speed in the world of business, of business, would you like do an MBA or would you just launch your own company? Um, so I came from psychology and philosophy. So you have to understand, I didn't know that much about finance or, yeah. um, you know, operations and that sort of thing. And I've been a sales guy. So I think getting the MBA was, was helpful. It gave me a sense of how all the pieces fit together. Um, I think that most of what I learned in my MBA class, I really didn't apply here, I think a lot of the MBA class was sort of either bigger company um, centric or, you know, really kind of building a, a base of consultants that were coming out to go and work at the Accentures and that sort of thing. Um, so much more, you know, broad, broad management kind of uh, thinking. So, but it was, uh, you know, looking back, would I do it again? 
Um, I think in my particular case, I needed some uh, business understanding to understand how to put together a plan and to understand what EBITDA was and what multiples of you know revenue were and just just basic stuff that I would never have gotten exposure to in my undergraduate. Makes sense. Makes sense. You know, I think for some people it works and for some others, they're like, you know what, it's better the pragmatic route and, and just do it myself. So totally get it. So so then the um, the your next business. Right. So so Commerce Hub that that happened right after you got your your degree, your your graduation out of out of the University of Albany. So the um, so can you walk us through what was the the process? Because ideas take time to incubate. So were you like thinking about like how this would look like during your MBA program and kind of like walk us through how that idea got incubated. Sure. So I was really fascinated. You, you know, you have to realize this is like the onset of, you know, what we know as the internet, the World Wide web. Uh, you know, as soon as the first day that I was on a mosaic browser and the, the internet was no longer textual, it was pictures. I, I knew it was going to be a commerce platform. People were going to sell things. You know, and it just it was just so obvious to me that that was going to happen, that I became obsessed with it. And I wanted to figure out, I figured I was going to be, you know, some online retailer. That's sort of how I got started. And, you know, my first thought was obviously, you know, selling video games online because I knew somebody who had video games. But basically, when I, when I was in my MBA program, you know, most of the other students were doing certain types of projects. And uh, I worked with my professor. We got, we got, you know, at the time, an Oracle, you know, database, and we got some other tools. And I suggested we build an e-commerce platform. Nobody really was talking about it. I got a couple of other people on my team uh, to join me, to be on my team, I should say. Um, and we started to put this thing together. And we built the bookstore for the University at Albany. Um, you know, so we had, you know, um, you know, all the memorabilia. You could buy the T-shirts and sweatshirts and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, at the time, and whenever it was, 1995 or six. That was pretty remarkable, right? I mean, I don't even know if Amazon exactly when they started, but right around then. Um, and so we had put this bookstore online and it got a lot of attention. Um, I got a lot of job offers, you know, uh, when I was graduating and I just decided that I wanted to do my own thing. And, you know, I, I hadn't been working. I'd been in an MBA program and I figured if I'm ever going to do something, now's the time. I, if I go, you know, buy a house and have kids then I'll probably, you know, never be able to start my own company. And so, uh, my wife was, uh, gracious enough to keep working for a while so that I could start, uh, the, the company. And, you know, I started off and my first, uh, you know, my first, uh, piece of revenue was coming back from that video game distributor. And, uh, we started to, you know, connect him, you know, uh, onto a bunch of different retailers. I had the notion that, you know, he's got 3000 video games in his warehouse um, and what if we could get those pictures and product descriptions displayed on all of the top retailers, the Walmarts, the QVCs, the targets, and be able to have those companies, you know, leverage their marketing, uh, and sales muscle, um, and open up an entirely new channel for this video game distribution company. And so I would reach out to these retailers and I would say, Hey, I was on your website. I noticed you have 10 video games. Um, we've got 3,000 video games. I've got all the pictures and product descriptions. You could put them on their website. Um, we can do an integration to our backend systems, and we'll ship these products directly to your customers uh, on your behalf. And they would all say, when can you be here? Because it was all incremental revenue and all incremental margin for these guys. They didn't have to stock any inventory. They didn't have to warehouse it. It was literally zero risk, right? And it was just new sales and more products that could sell. So we went down and uh, QVC was the first company I went to. They were very excited. 
um, about trying to make this happen. And then we ran into all of the realities of what it's really like to be a drop shipper shipping uh, on behalf of major companies. Uh, customers would call and ask where the order was. They wouldn't have any uh, knowledge of that. So we really started to build systems that would tie out all of this information. So that we, in essence, literally made this video game distributor in upstate New York almost like it was one of their own warehouses, right? Like systematically, you know, they would know exactly what inventory was in stock. Systematically, they placed an order. It would get shipped. They'd know it's shipped. They'd get the tracking information, stuff we take for granted today when we do this stuff. Um, but back then was really complex. And um, we were on the forefront of this, built a platform that would allow us, allow us to do this at greater scale. And um, it just went from there. But leveraging that video game, um, you know, I look back and I think about how, if I was trying to start this and I had to go sell a retailer purely on the platform, I probably would have never made it, you know. Yeah. But I look back and it's because I had those video games, I had something the retailer wanted, and that got me in the door. And once I was in the door, I could be like, hey, do you have problems with other suppliers? Because I knew how problem, problematic it was for us. And they'd say, yeah, do we? Of course we do. And I'd say, you know, why don't you pass them my way? And I can see how quickly I might be able to get them connected. And we just continued to leverage that. Um, I had a really good co-founder that really understood the computer science problems we were trying to solve beyond sort of the business objectives. And, you know, we, we meshed well and we're able to just continue to build from there. So then let's talk about your co-founder. How did you guys meet? So meeting Richard was uh, really, really, uh, you know, what helped catalyze the, the go forward plan. Um, I had an old professor, I uh, had, inter I shouldn't say an old professor, former professor, um, asked me to come back and speak at the, at the, at one of her classes. And I really had no interest in doing it. I was, you know, tied up with a number of things that I wanted to do. And so, but I agreed to go back and speak. And so I went there because it was an MBA class. I didn't figure I was going to find the technical person I wanted. So I went there and I just did my spiel and I told folks, you know, if you know anyone technical, you know, have them reach out. I need somebody to help me build a company. When I got back to my desk, I got an email and it was literally on one line. You know, back then there was the difference between systems. He was sending it from a Unix system. So it was literally one line. I scrolled across that whole line and I saw the word Java. And so I found his phone number in that long stretch of text and decided to give him a call. And we ended up meeting for lunch. And uh, in many ways, the rest is history. It took him a while to join the team, but um, we became, you know, friends and he would stop by and slowly but surely I was able to get him to join the team for very little money and, um, you know, hope, hope that uh, the company would succeed with equity. And there is like um, meeting co-founders. I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, it's probably the biggest decision that you make when, when you're building a business. So when you met uh, Richard, was there like one moment in time that you really told yourself, this guy is the guy for this? Yeah. Just when we would talk about the problem, you know, I'd met with other people along the way and they, they'd all try to solve it almost like a programmer would try to solve the problem. You know, they would just start, start coding, you know? Um, and it's sort of the difference between the way an architect thinks about a building and the way a carpenter thinks about a building. And, and so Richard had that architectural mindset. So when we first sat down, you know, he was saying, oh, here's some of the problems you're going to run into if you try to, you know, go and do this. There's all kinds of other things that you're going to need to abstract out. And, um, you know, it, really remarkable looking back. I mean, he didn't have the experience um, you know, uh, to, to sort of have sort of come to these conclusions, but, but did, you know what I mean? He had that kind of mind. Yeah. So then, so then finally you guys go into it. So what was kind of like the, um, 
that initial team? I mean, what were some of the key hires, the first initial key hires that you had to make? So definitely, you know, programmers were, were the bulk of it. Um, so mostly on, we had a, a few operational people to support the customers that we had. And then we had mostly engineers. I mean, in the early days, it was, you know, three or four of us. And then it grew to, you know, six or seven. And then, you know, we raised a little money and you go from sort of 10 to 20 kind of, you know, pretty quickly. Um, but, but generally speaking, it was mostly engineers. And at one point I had a part-time finance person, you know, because we were running out of money and I needed to figure out how to go and raise capital. And that was nothing I'd ever done. Um, you know, we were sort of living off the, the money we were making off the consulting work doing for the video game, um, you know, distributor. So then, so then what were some of the early days like of a commerce hub? So some of the early days were a lot of, um, you know, system problems. These are the things I remember systems going down, um, you know, just problems that would happen on the retail side, you know, the, their systems would hiccup, they'd send out orders. And we'd send those orders down to a supplier. The supplier would send out the big screen TVs. Their system would hiccup and send that same batch of orders again. And those suppliers would send out another batch of big screen TVs to the same customers. Um, I remember that happening maybe three times in one day. So when big screen TVs go out, um, everybody gets panicky. Um, you know, so just there was a lot of things that needed to be worked out down in the bowels of the system. You know, when you're dealing with disparate parties, right, it's, we had control over what happened inside Commerce Hub, but we didn't have control over what happened inside the supplier systems, and we didn't have control over what happened in the retailer systems. So, you know, we had to evolve a platform that would detect all kinds of problems from all these different sources and all the things that could go wrong. And, you know, quite honestly, we've, you know, if Richard were here, he'd say that we've built antibodies to the, to the viruses we've encountered in the jungle over 20 years. So we've developed capabilities that allow us to you know, protect all of the parties that communicate through our platform sort of from each other, you know? So if a, if a, if a, the wrong invoice goes up, you know, the, the, the retailer agreed to pay $50 for the item and, you know, the item gets shipped and the supplier tries to charge 70, you know, we can control that from getting into the retailer's system and updating their accounts payable system incorrectly, you know? So we're sitting in the middle of all of this communication. Got it. So then, so then I guess the um, one thing that, that, that really hits me here is so, so you definitely grow from the video gaming experience, what you had learned there, and, and you grow this to like, you know, a, a wider, uh, I would say, um, audience no? of like being the, the, how you enable the retailers and, and the different brands. So, so I guess just for the listeners so that they really understand what really became the business model of Commerce Hub? If you don't mind just like summarizing it, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so I'll just give you the, the high level. So Commerce Hub is uh, in the business of integrating retailers and their suppliers. And we do this uh, primarily for e-commerce. If you think about it, Amazon has about 300 million SKUs available for sale online. If you take the average retail store, they may have 70,000 SKUs, maybe 100,000 SKUs if it's a superstore of some sort. But for the most part, when you go online, 100,000 SKUs is like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. There's, it's, it's paltry. And so in order to be successful in today's environment, retailers have to have really vast assortments of products. They have to have really good offers. They have to have really good customer experience. They have to offer free delivery, quick delivery. Um, and so, you know, one of the hardest challenges for retailers that, are, you know, is, is a balance sheet. They don't have the ability to go out and do what Amazon does. 
um, and keep getting rewarded by Wall Street. They have to, you know, maintain profitability. And so, you know, they have to be very selective about which inventory they're able to buy. And they'll buy those things that they think they're going to sell a lot of that have a lot of inventory turns. But what, what we enable is the, the ability for them to radically expand the assortment that they offer to their customers beyond what they can physically cut checks for for inventory. So you, you take some of our retailers, you know, as much as maybe 90% of their online volume, I'm sorry, their online products are actually virtual and going through Commerce Hub. And as much as 50% of their online business is going through Commerce Hub. And we're talking billions of dollars, you know, for some of these retailers. We work with the likes of QVC and Walmart and uh, Costco and Home Depot and Dick Sporting Goods and um, Lowe's and Macy's, a number of other, you know, large retailers. We've got about 12,000 brands uh, and distributors that are on the back end that are shipping products directly to customers. Last year, we did about $20 billion of uh, gross merchandise value of goods sold that got processed through our platform and network. That's amazing. I mean, I get dizzy from from just thinking about all these zeros. But uh, but Frank, let me ask you. One of the things that that was that I was present to us as we were discussing and and you kind of like touched on the on the challenges that you guys were facing was uh, really the fact that you guys are not in a in a place like Silicon Valley or or let's say New York City, right? Because you were talking about like some of your key hires being being programmers and and engineers. So. Did you find it uh, tough to be able to secure talent uh, given given where you guys were located? No, interestingly enough, um, this area has got a, you know got a lot of good colleges and universities. There's a lot of technical talent around here. The bigger challenge in in Albany, New York, in particular, is just there's not a lot of e-commerce or retail experience, right? It's it, but the technical and operational. We've got GE here. We've got IBM here. You know, there's a number of larger companies. So. There is a technical base, um, but not a retail and e-commerce base for sure. That was the bigger, the bigger challenge. We opened up an office. We actually bought a company out of Seattle, um, and you know, and we 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 got a team of people out of that acquisition that are in Seattle that are really you know focused on marketplaces and social and search types of capabilities and e-commerce because it's much more prevalent there. Um, but interestingly enough, I would say within the last year or so, we've moved the entire engineering team that we had in Seattle to Albany, New York. Um, you know, we're probably 30% uh, less pr less uh, cost here. And honestly, we get um, we get a higher, you know, uh, a higher caliber uh, engineer here than we uh -huh. may, you know, if you, if you think about Seattle, there's all kinds of things going on out there from artificial intelligence to drones to, you know, Boeing and Microsoft, you know, Google and Facebook. Whereas in Albany, we, you know, we're working on some of the more cutting edge types of things. And probably more loyalty from, from employees, no? because on the being in place like New York City, I can tell you from experience that that is just like a revolving door having people. You train them and then, you know, there's something, you know, that comes along and it's just like you probably have people on average like a couple of years. You're yeah, yeah. We, we tend to do better than that. Uh, one of the things if you came by our office is you'd see jerseys that are hanging um, we do hockey jerseys. Just uh, I started that a long time ago, but um, we, you get your your employee name on the back and the, or your last name on the back, and then you get your employee number. And so the first people that were here would go up to ninety nine, and then after that we put the year that you started. And if you walk around, um, you'll see that the tenure here is pretty good. We've hired a lot of newer people over the last couple of years, but um, you'll see that there's a lot of people here that have been here for some time. 
That's really cool. I wonder if there is anyone showing up in the cafeteria with the jersey that says 97. 97. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, <laughs> I, my jersey says back then in 1997, the, the, the numbers were like low, right? So I was number one. Um, so in 97, there was probably only two or three jerseys given out that whole year. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So, so then you were talking about the fundraising before. So tell us a little bit about the fundraising side and, and at what point do you tell yourself we need money for this thing? Um, well, at the point when I did basic math and it said, uh, this is how much I got to pay people and this is what it costs for rent. Um, <clears throat> so I knew in the beginning I'd have to raise money if I wanted to do anything other than you know, trade my time for money. And that was always a big thing with me, you know, was always like, I, I never liked the idea of trading your time for money, you know? And I thought, you know, if you're going to be a, you know, a brain surgeon, maybe you can make the most amount of money for your time, but you still have a limited amount of time. Yeah. Needed to, we, so we, we knew we needed to raise funding. Um, and, and so I put together a business plan. I wasn't really good at the financial aspect of it and knowing how, how everything all tied out. I certainly, you know, didn't pay as much attention in accounting classes as I should have because I didn't know how to do all of that balance sheet stuff at the time. Um, so I got somebody to help me put together some numbers and do sort of modeling. And once I had a model, I could play with the variable inputs and, you know, do snapshots of business plans. And so I had a business plan with financials. And then uh, I went out and just started getting meeting after meeting to try to get some people to give me money. And um, that was a um, really, really hard and um, fruitless slog for the most part. You know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't really understand how investing worked. And I think that's fundamental, right? People want to put, I came to the conclusion at one point, it's just like a meat grinder. People want to put a dollar in the top, crank the wheel and have like $7 come out the bottom. They don't really care what happens in the middle with all the sausage making. As long as you can convince them, if they give you a dollar, you can give them seven back. So I and started also explain that. Huh? Uh, what's that? And also explain and walk them through what, what's the process. Exactly. And so I got to the point where I started to say, okay, I get what this is about. It's about investment. And, you know, so I started to learn how to present it. But I'd probably been to 10 meetings. Um, I was in Albany, New York. I was going to Silicon Valley and meeting with the likes of Benchmark Capital. I was getting great meetings. Um, and I was meeting because e-commerce was hot. And we were in the B2B space, which was hot. And I was going to like Battery Ventures. And, you know, I was going to New York City. Um, and, and, you know, we were trying to raise, raise money and, but, but how did you get those meetings, eh, Frank, because I mean, you're, let's, let's face it. You're in Albany. You're not in, in, especially during these years. I remember one of my first meetings was uh, with Sequoia and they told me, look, we don't, this was years ago. And they said, we don't invest in a company that is uh, more than a bike ride away from our office. So I guess, how were you able to secure those meetings? I don't know. I, I, I'm a hustler, right? I mean, I, I pick up the phone, I dial, I send emails, I write compelling letters, I, you know, overnight something, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll wait outside I your office, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever I it takes. It. Okay. Um, but, but basically I, I, I had a good story. I did, you know, and if I look back at it, I remember somebody, uh, I won't say who at benchmark capital said to me, what goes on in Albany? And, uh, I said, it's Albany, you know? And, uh, he said, well, what goes on there? And I said, what do you mean what goes on there? And, you know, and, and he was like, can you find talent? And, you know, and I was like, what is, what is this guy saying? And, you know, now I realize, right. I, I was a young, naive punk, but now I realize it's like, if somebody came to me from my hometown and said, Frank, I've got this incredible idea. And it was a really good idea. And they were going to stay in my hometown. I wouldn't give them money because they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the people. Nobody's going to move there. 
And I got that. And to somebody from Silicon Valley, they probably thought of Albany as, you know, uh, as backwoods as backwoods can be. It's really not. It's it's a it's a pretty vibrant area. It's the capital of the state. And so we've got access to city and Boston and everything. So we're close. Um, but but uh, yeah, I think no one wanted to invest. The one guy said, I really like your company, but I'm not going to invest because I don't want to have to fly across the country four times a year just for board meetings. Yeah. Um, the Boston guys uh, were a little less problematic with that. And certainly New York City guys could take a train up here. So they didn't have a problem with Albany per se, but you know, you look at the management team. So you've got Frank Poor, and, you know, he sold computers for a while and had to use video game store, you know, um, that's, is that really where you, where you want to put your money? Um, you know, Richard, you know, Richard was, uh, I think we were joking. He was like the president of his eighth grade student council, you know, that was his leadership experience. Um, so, you know, we didn't have the track record. We were in a, you know, an undesirable area. Um, we ended up winning the RPI business plan competition, uh, that got the attention of some, you know, alumni investors from RPI that probably saw the the winners that were investors somewhere. Um, then we start we got a small investment, two hundred fifty thousand dollars from a local, um, a local um, bank that started a little venture fund. And then uh, the guy Glenn Rockwood, I, I owe him a lot. He was the video game guy, factoring again into the story. Um, I needed some money. And uh, I was running out of cash and, you know, I was trying, I was waiting. I thought I was going to get money, but it was taking longer than I expected. So I reached out to him because I had to make payroll that month. And I said, is there any way you could loan me some money until I get this VC deal done? And he said, how much do you need? And I, I couldn't even bear to say $10,000. It seemed like so much money to me to ask this guy for $10,000. And he's like, well, what do you need? And I said, well, what can you part with? And he's like, Frank, what do you need? And I said, Glenn, I, it's hard for me to ask. What can you do? He's like, what do you want? A hundred thousand dollars. And I said, yes, I do. I'd like a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he wrote me a check and, you know, had he not written me that check, I, I wouldn't be sitting here because it, wow. it took probably a good bit of that, but that hundred thousand dollars coming from him, you know, somebody that knew me for multiple years, um, that had worked with me, um, that was a customer gave confidence to the local VC guy to put in 250,000 and it got in the paper and another guy gave me a hundred thousand. And the next thing, you know, I had friends, fools and families, you know, contributing and we were up to almost a million dollars and I wanted to get the profitability on that. And every venture capitalist I talked to after that told me I was an idiot basically because I wanted to get the profitability and it was about mind share and market share and eyeballs and all kinds of other, you know, useless business, business uh, metrics. Yeah. And you know, and eventually, uh, you know, we, we, we went on and I raised a little bit more money and then nine 11 hit and I was profitable and no one else was, you know? And so we were profitable in 2001 that summer, we hit profitability and cash flow generation. And so we were able to outlast, you know, folks that went out and blew, you know, some of our competitors had raised as much as $130 million. Um, some 96, 76, it was all off the charts, the amount of money people had raised. And were they producing the same amount of results? No, they weren't. Um, they were signing up customers that would, we would, we would go and meet with these customers and we would be trying to charge, uh, you know, a, a more money. And so they'd go with the lower price people and they'd all go out of business. Um, every one of those, every single company that we competed against that I could name probably seven of them, you know, went out of business probably by, you know, 2006. So there's a lot of people actually, and I'm glad that you touch uh, that you touch on this because there's a lot of people talking about a potential correction. 
that may happen, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, the economy goes in cycles. And it seems that we're coming out of one of the biggest, or if not the biggest, uh, bull run uh, in, in history. So knowing what you know now, I mean... Uh, if you if you had to go through another let's say downturn like like the one that you went through, I mean, what what kind of what kind of tips or or takeaways would you really keep in mind when building a business? Uh, you know, there's 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 companies out there that are far more risk. Or there's people out there, I should say, that are far more risk taking than I am. Um, and some of those folks have much bigger returns ultimately because they took the bigger risk and it panned out. Um, but you could take a big risk and and completely come up come up short and lose everything. And so, you know, I've always been somebody that wanted to build profitability, have a sustainable business, um, you know, that, that, that could persist and, and weather, weather storms. And in the good times, you know, you can, you can, you know, um, expand and do those things. But if you, you know, you know, that winter's coming, you want to, you want to make sure you've squirreled away some nuts, you know, and make sure that you're fed through the tough times. And, you know, I, I concur. I, you know, I can't predict when something's going to happen, but you know, this market does feel a little frothy and, you know, it's sort of in my mind, I'm not a finance guy again, so don't, don't take my word for it. But, you know, I think the whole thing is built on, you know, sort of phony money. It's just all government producing, printing, running printing presses, and the, the money has to go somewhere and it made its way into the markets and it's making its way, you know, onto, onto balance sheets of companies and, it's making its way into mortgages and, you know, it's out there and exposed, you know, if, if there's a downturn, you know, all that debt is out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So definitely a good way to control your own destiny, the way the strategy that you chose. So I know that, that you guys have done uh, three liquidity events, right? So first it was the transaction, the, the acquisition that you guys did with Comcast QVC. Then you actually... It took the uh, company public, and then the most recent transaction, which uh, the company was acquired by uh, private equity firms. But we're going to talk about each one of them. But I guess on the first one, how how this how did this um, acquisition come about with Comcast QVC? So Comcast, so QVC was my largest customer, and I told you after nine eleven, you know, money was starting to dry up everywhere, as you can imagine. There was anthrax in the air, and the the world was a little bit uh, unnerved. And, and so money was drying up. So I wanted to take another round of funding. Um, and it was, it was hard to do. QVC was my largest client. So we, we caught a deal where they would um, take a control stake in the company. That's tough on an entrepreneur because, you know, I, I don't know what that ultimately means. Um, but we, we were good partners and I really liked the people that I was involved with. Um, but we cut a deal that would uh, give them control of the company. I didn't want to be a captive subsidiary. And I didn't want the shareholders who had invested along the way to be captive. So we created a liquidity event in the form of uh, I had negotiated a put right where I could, um, in essence, put the company for sale, put my shares for sale. We'd get valued by a third party investment bank. Um, they would have the first bite at the apple. Um, and if they bought it at that price, it was theirs. If they didn't buy it, I had the next bite at the apple. And if I bought it, it was mine. If I didn't, it went to auction. And when the price came back, uh, I was delighted by the price. Um, and QVC Comcast uh, triggered their uh, or exercised their right to buy the company outright. And they did. And um, so that's that's how that happened in 2006. Got it. So it was a, ultimately that was a controlling interest, as you as you were saying. 
But one thing that, that I thought it was really interesting is that you've been involved with Commerce Hub for 22 years. Yes, I have. That's a long time. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so let's talk about this. So then after the transaction, what happens? So after the transaction, um, you know, I, I decided to, they wanted me to stay on as CEO, but I decided that I would, um, that I would move on. They, so they asked me to stay on the board of directors. So I was uh, vice chairman. Um, I helped them bring in a new CEO, and uh, a CEO ran the company from 2006 to 2011. And uh, in, the, in the interim, Liberty Media um, bought QVC, and so they inherited this investment. When they realized what they had, it was e-commerce. They pulled it up under their e-commerce portfolio under something called Liberty Interactive. So we were part of that portfolio. Um, so I obviously, I was on the board. I got to meet the Liberty folks. Um, and got to know them. They invited me to a lot of events. We, you know, we hit it off and, you know, they started to try to figure out if there was a way that they could get me to come back uh, in a full-time capacity. And so I came back as CEO in 2013 and, um, and, and took over, uh, took over the company then. So let's, let's then talk about the, um, and this was kind of like a Steve Jobs type of move, right? Because we were talking about Steve Jobs before. So, so very similar coming back to to the company that you founded and, and taking the reins. So, so just out of curiosity, what did you see when, when you got, when you got back? Because I mean, it's a, we're talking about, you know, a fair amount of years outside of the operational day to day. Yeah. So I, I was on the board, so I was clearly updated and, you know, they would, when they had big deals, I would get brought in to, uh, on sales deals, that sort of thing. So I wasn't completely out of the dark. Um, I think that the company didn't innovate as much uh, during that period. And so the, you know, the growth rates had changed a bit. I had been the primary, you know, sales leader for the company when I was in the first phase. Um, and so I think that started to slow down a little bit. And so um, when I first came back, I really wanted to make the company much more front end focused. You know, when we first got started, we were, you know, we're an IT company, we're a software company, we're connecting, you know, technically connecting people. And so we're out selling this technical platform. But but something sort of, you know, much more profound had happened. And was part of the original vision, which was, you know, Mr. Retailer, you can radically grow your business by expanding your assortment. And I wanted to really make the company much more about product expansion, faster delivery, you know, and being able to generate revenue than it was about being, you know, sort of a technical integration solution. And so I, I refocused the company much more heavily on, you know, not selling to the operational teams or the technical teams, but really going in and selling to the P&L owner, the, the, the president, the CEO, and saying, you know, this e-commerce part of your business could be a dramatically greater, you know, portion, and it's where the future is, and you've got you've to get with it. And so we repositioned the company, um, you know, built out account management teams that were much more focused on helping our retailers grow their business than focused purely on making sure that system-to-system -system connections worked. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So then, so then after you, you put all these different corrections in place and, and it seems that, you know, you already have a strategy and, and how to move things forward. Like what was the, um, what was the, the reasoning behind going public? So to go public, so we, we, we had the company going, um, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to unlock value ultimately. Right. I mean, we, we, we were part of this Liberty interactive portfolio. And so in this portfolio was, QVC, which was, you know, if this were, you know, a dinner plate, they would be the big, 
you know, piece of steak, the massive piece of steak on the, in the portfolio. And then you'd have commerce hub and we'd be, you know, some peas and they had bodybuilding.com and they had uh, backcountry.com. There was a handful of companies in there, but QVC was so dominant in the portfolio that, you know, investors just sort of, you know, we were rounding errors, you know what I'm saying? And so commerce hub wasn't getting valued, you know, as a, as a standalone company, we're just, you know, we were, we were in the sauce of this larger company. And so we wanted to unlock the value of the company. And so we decided to spin the company out from Liberty and, and, and take it to the public market. So then what was the, um, I know, I mean, the people that, that I've had on the, on the show that, that discussed the experience of being a public company, I mean, some of them thought it was interesting. Some of them, they actually didn't enjoy the, the experience at all. So, so I guess, I guess for you, how, how was this experience? So, you know, every entrepreneur, when they first get started, you know, you go to talk to, you know, investors and they're like, what's your exit strategy? And I remember in the beginning, people say, what's your exit strategy? And I'm like, exit, I'm trying to enter. I don't I wasn't even thinking about leaving, you know? Right. Um, but, but it's like, you know, when you're, when you're talking about this as an entrepreneur, it's like, oh yeah, you want to go public. That, that's the, you know, sort of naive thing you want to do. It just seems like the end game somehow. Um, and if you do that, you are successful. Um, and, and, you know, and back in the day, you know, everybody's going public. And so it seemed like that, that was the end game, uh, or at least it felt like that for, for us, like going public, um, it's obviously a lot of work. Um, you know, we didn't have the public infrastructure. I had to hire, you know, we had finance, but we didn't have the, the entire, you know, infrastructure you need for a public offering, investor relations, accounting, the whole bit. Um, so we had to go and put that in place. Um, we had to go out and meet with banks and, you know, take on lines of credit and things we hadn't never had to do. So it was a great learning experience. And then going out, um, and if you think about it, we had Liberty shareholders. We did a spin out. We didn't do an IPO. Um, so when we went on our roadshow, it's an, what they call a non-deal roadshow. Like, so at the end of it, you know, nobody's buying any shares, right? So you don't even know how you're doing on the roadshow. So like normally you go out on a roadshow and you meet with, you know, some bank and, you know, hey, can we put you down for X? And they buy them. And then you have a sort of book of business, right? When we're doing it, people already own Commerce Hub. All the Liberty shareholders um, already own Commerce Hub through Liberty Interactive. So the easiest way I can explain it is pretend there's 10 stocks in Liberty Interactive. It's almost like a mutual fund, right? And then one day, and they're all worth a dollar, and you put $10 in. On, this, on day two after the spin, you own nine shares of Liberty Interactive and one share of Commerce Hub. Before you owned one share of Commerce Hub, but it was in this larger $10 investment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so go ahead. Yep. I was going to say, so what happens is you can imagine the people that were investing in Liberty were, you know, large cap media investors or whoever they were. Um, and they were technically not probably allowed within their funds to invest in a small cap tech company. Right. And so we had to go and build up an entirely new shareholder base. So we were out there meeting with new companies as, as these other companies would have to sell off. We wanted additional institutions to pick up the shares. So we spent time out meeting with, with bankers and doing the analyst tours and all of the kinds of things that you do, but it was a non-deal roadshow, you know? And so everyone had the benefit of waiting to see what happens with the stock. Um, so it came out and it did pretty well and we continued to do well and it continued to go up. And, um, you know, we, we were public for, I don't know, two years. So would we have seven or eight earnings calls? Um, you know, so the preparation for those is pretty dramatic. Um, you know, cost five or $6 million a year to be public, just in public company costs, you know, between filings and legal and accounting and finance and staff and everything else that you need. 
Um, so we did it. I, you know, if you ask me, uh, did I enjoy the experience? I, I did because it was a great learning experience. Um, I didn't have a lot of the pains and lumps that uh, a lot of CEOs have and getting crushed and beat up in the public markets that didn't really happen. We had a pretty successful run. So, you know, you had some analysts that would come out and make certain comments and, you know, you have some people on Twitter who say what they say, but for the most part, I, you know, I, we weren't facing any kind of, um, real negative pressure from outside. So it was a good experience for me. Well, that's, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. So, so then Frank, why, why did you guys decide to, um, to actually go ahead with, with selling the business in, in 2018? So it actually started, we were looking at buying a company and I went to the board and was presenting a case for buying a company. And one of the questions, one of my board members smartly asked was, you know, what are we worth with this? And what do you think we're worth without it? I mean, what are we worth now? What will we be worth if we have this? Um, and does one plus one equal three? And, you know, we did some internal analysis and uh, the suggestion was made, let's talk to an investment banker who could sort of give us their, their view of this. And um, I learned very quickly how investment bankers make their money. Um, they don't make it by giving fairness opinions. They make it by selling companies. So they yeah. saw Commerce Hub and they said, wow, we think there's a number of companies that would be really interested in this, both financial and strategic. Um, you know, we should really consider this. Then we got an offer, an inbound offer. And as a public company, you know, you have to, you have to entertain these things. And at a certain point, you have to, you know, really ask yourself, is this the right time to sell? And, you know, our board concluded that it was in the best interest of shareholders uh, to take the company private and to reward the earlier shareholders. And so that was the decision that was made. So was there like a process or you just took the, the inbound that? that first oh, came no, out? no, no. We're a public company. We, we, we had a whole process. Um, you know, it, it went on for months and, you know, there was multiple players involved. And yeah, there was a there was a full process. So what's the main difference between doing an M&A? uh, on with a private company versus a public company? So we didn't, I've only done an, I've only done acquisition as a private company. Um, I would much rather do it as a private company. There's a lot of things that you can do as a private company that are hard to do as a public company. Um, you know, because everybody's got an opinion of what you should be doing on the outside. And if you decide that you want to expand your sales force and take losses for a while, you know, you got to explain that to shareholders and to the public markets who can, beat you up with their share votes, right? Um, buying and selling your shares. Whereas, you know, now if I want to go buy a company, I, we sit down with a couple of people and have a discussion and make a determination. Yeah. It's just, it's a whole different, different scenario. And if we wanted to take something that didn't have an immediate payback, um, but it was strategic in the long term, um, we could do that versus it's much harder to do. I mean, you got guys like Jeff Bezos that can go out there and say, I'm going to lose money. Just let me keep losing money. Let me keep losing money. I'll make it up to you someday. And, you know, he's able to convince people that's harder to do than it's, than it sounds. Absolutely. So then what were ultimately the terms of the transaction? We sold the company for $1.1 billion. Wow. That's a uh, pretty, pretty cool. And uh, then, then I guess, you know, now that, now that you're kind of like, um, I would say looking back no, on, on, on this incredible ride, I mean, what an amazing ride because not once you provided liquidity to investors, but three times with the same business. I mean, there's not a lot of people that, that are able to do this. So, uh, so congratulations on that, Frank. But there's one question that I always ask guests that, that participate on the show, and that is knowing what you know now 
Frank, and I know that this is really impossible, but let's say if, if, if we were able to do this, if you had the chance to speak with your younger self before launching a business, what would be one piece of advice that you would give yourself? Uh, hire the absolute best people you can find and, 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 uh, you know, pay them the, the extra, the difference between an A player and a B player is dramatic. You know, it's, it's, it's dramatic. And so it took a while to, you know, you know, it's like when you're an entrepreneur and you're, you're hell bent, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily a great leader. I was leading through will and determination. Um, and you hire people because they're the people that you can afford. They're the people that are willing to take a chance in the early days. Um, but if you, if you've got money, um, and, and I grew up with nothing and I, and I grew up in an area where I never made a lot of money until I started selling things. And so when you're going to hire people, um, and you know, and you don't have a lot of money, you can't offer a lot of money, but I guess the point is I'm making is it's worth it to pay the extra for the better people. It just is. Yeah. Makes, makes complete sense. So Frank, what is the best way for the folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Um, I can be reached, uh, via email at frank at commercehub.com. And what about Twitter handle or, or maybe LinkedIn? Do you uh, use those? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm just, my name is Frank poor. I don't know that there's a lot of us out there, so you should probably be able to find me there. And I'm also on Twitter as Frank poor. Amazing. Well, Frank, thank you so much, Frank, for being on the dealmaker show. It has been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure as well. I really enjoyed talking to you, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.